Well, we, we, as those of you know who have been around the past couple weeks, are still in the midst of a series called The Story. And, and this is a, a series that we're doing where we're basically taking the, the whole story of the Bible, the big story of the Bible, and we're breaking it up into six different parts, or what we call the, the six acts of the story or the drama of Scripture. And let me just pause for a minute and recommend two books, since I'm sure you're all bored and are always thinking, man, what book should I read right now? Uh, the, the outline for this entire series actually is inspired by a book called The Drama of Scripture by Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew. So throughout this series, if you want to dig a little deeper into, into the biblical story, um, I highly recommend this book. Several of our community group leaders are actually reading this right now. The second book has to do with uh, the sermon last week. And it's called The Lost World of Genesis 1 uh, by an Old Testament scholar, John Walton. Uh, a, an excellent scholar um, who happens to also love Jesus. Uh, and he does a phenomenal job of digging into the, the, the cultural and historical context in which Genesis 1 was written. So two books I'd, I'd highly recommend. Now, if, uh, if you were around last week, then, then you know that we began at the beginning, the beginning of the story. And I just want to point out uh, this amazing artwork. Again, anything that ever looks good around here is because of Matt Agresti, okay? So well done, Matt. Um, but as you can see, yeah, there, there are six different symbols up there. Each symbol represents a different act in the story of the scriptures. And, uh, and so, as you can see, if you walked by the welcome desk, we also have some very, very nice coffee mugs that are free, unless you'd like to give a little donation, five bucks, just to help cover costs, but, but just take one. And, and here's, here's the hope, here's the hope with something like this, that if you take this, these symbols, if you connect the dots, represent the whole story of the Bible, which we believe is the one true story of the world. We believe that the Bible is not simply a book of rules or moralistic fables, but it tells one coherent, good story from creation to new creation, beginning to end. And, and we, we believe it's a, it's a good thing to actually not only know this story, but to know it so well that we begin to live within it. And to live within it in such a way that, that we, we are actually enabled to tell the story. And so here, here's what that looks like for this. If you, let's say, go to Starbucks and you bring this cup and someone looks at this and says, okay, so what's the story here? What, what do those symbols mean? This is truly a great opportunity to say, oh, well, actually, that, that's the Bible. And then people will be, what, what do you mean that's the Bible? And, and you'll have an opportunity to tell the biblical story. Now, this presumes that you actually know the biblical story, but this is truly our hope that we would become a people who, who with our very lives and our words, would be increasingly equipped to tell the one true story of the world, which culminates in the person of Jesus. 
And so last week, as you can see from the first symbol here, which is a downward arrow, last week we began with Act 1, the story of creation. The story of, a, of, of God who, who reveals himself like, like a king, whose kingdom is all creation. And we saw in this God that he's also like a, like a skilled engineer who, who brings order out of disorder. And we saw that this God also is like an artist, an artist who delights in his work. His masterpiece, of course, being us, human beings, those who are created in his image. This is how the story begins. But then we go to act two, and as you can see, there's an X symbol. That means bad. And, and this is the part of the story where everything goes wrong. I, I don't know if you remember what you were doing the morning of December 25th, 2005, uh, but I remember what I was doing. I, I was visiting home on Christmas break from college, uh, and I was with my parents. And, and I'll never forget, I remember vividly that morning, the phone ringing. My mom answered the phone, there was a pause, and then she broke down in tears because she had just heard that my 11-year-old cousin, who had been battling cancer for the past year, had just died. And a week later, my aunt and uncle had to do something that no parent should ever have to do. They buried their child. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. From, from abusive boyfriends to broken marriages, from alcoholism to infertility, from the tragedy of suicide to the horror of suicide bombers, from pornography addiction to medical affliction. We've all seen or been touched by experiences in life that remind us of the inescapable reality that there are things in this world that are just not the way they're supposed to be. And this is not, hear me, this is not to say that our world is all bad. We, we have this nagging sense that there are things in this world that are not the way they're supposed to be, but, but we also recognize at some level, but that, that doesn't mean this world is all bad. Many of us have experienced the beauty of a sunset, the joy of meaningful relationships, the pleasure of recreation and delicious food. It's, it's not so much that this is a bad world devoid of good. Rather, it's, it's more like this is a good world gone bad. It's, it's as if the world was intended, like a small child, to, to learn to stand on two legs and grow and develop and flourish, but, but instead it's fallen down in the mud, incapable of standing up. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And the question that nags all of us, the question 
that every individual, every culture, every religion, every society is haunted by is why. Why is it that this world is not the way it's supposed to be? According to the biblical story, the reason why things are not the way they're supposed to be is because like, like a disease working itself through a body, something has infected God's good creation, something alien, something foreign, like, like a parasite that attaches itself to a, to a life and draws life from it. Something has infected God's good creation. And, and there are many different ways that the biblical story identifies and describes this, this infection, this foreign agent. And yet one of the most basic words used throughout the biblical story to describe this thing is sin. And in the biblical story, this word is, is used in, in two different ways. One of the ways that this word is used sometimes we might call sin with, with a lowercase s. This, this word, sin with a lowercase s, describes uh, things that we do, say, think. But, but there's another way that this word sin is used in the biblical story, and we might call this sin with a capital S. And sin with a capital S is something much bigger than just individual actions or thoughts or words. Sin with a capital S is, it's like a force, it's a power, it's again an, an infection. Something not that we do, but that we contract in some way. What's wrong with the world? According to the biblical story, the answer to that question is sin. And what I'd like to do this morning is summarize Genesis chapter 2. We began last week in Genesis chapter 1. This week, I'd like to summarize Genesis chapter 2 and then slowly walk through a little bit of the book of Genesis chapter 3. And here's what we find as we walk through, especially Genesis chapter 3, what we find in this story is, is we find an explanation for how sin begins. We also find in the story an explanation for what sin is. And finally, we find in this story an explanation for what sin does. How sin begins, what it is, and what it does. But first, in Genesis 2, we find something slightly different happening than in Genesis 1. In the very beginning of the Bible, as we talked about last week, it's as if we're given a 1,000-foot view of this wonderful event of creation, which is described in incredible ways. Again, it's described as if it's God's like this artist just painting this masterpiece of creation, right? thousand-foot view, but then in Genesis 2, it's as if our, our angle, our camera angle, zooms in, and, and we focus on one particular aspect of God's creation, and that is the creation of his image bearers, human beings. 
And so we learn in Genesis 2 that God creates this garden, right? We know this as the Garden of Eden. And at the center of this garden is a tree, a tree that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God creates a man whom he will later name Adam. He creates this man and, and he puts this man to work. He says, hey, listen, cultivate the ground here. Develop this garden, right? There are plenty of trees all around for you to enjoy delicious fruit. I'm taking care of you. You've got work to do. But, but there's just one, one thing. You see that one tree right there in the middle? Don't eat from that tree. And if you do, you will die. Anything else, have at it. Then we're told that God creates a second person, Eve, a woman. Adam is particularly excited about Eve. The poetry is beautiful. All is well in the garden. Flourishing relationships, Adam and Eve, man and woman, getting along great. God and his creation, everything is as it should be. And then we come to chapter 3. Then we come to chapter 3. And we see that this story explains how sin begins... And it begins with a lie. Sin always begins with a lie, we're told. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, let's hit the pause button here for a minute. Several questions come to mind when I read this. Like, where did this serpent come from? This serpent just kind of appears in the story. And is anyone else weirded out by the fact that this serpent is talking? <laughs> Can I just name the elephant? The... What, what is going on here, right? These are, these are questions that just come to mind. And one of the interesting things about the biblical story as you read it is that uh, it doesn't always answer every question that we have. In fact, and this could be frustrating for some, I, I mean, I personally, I have more questions than I have answers when I read the Bible. The Bible does not answer every question that we have, but it does answer the most important questions. And so here this serpent is. We don't know the story. The text doesn't tell us. But here this serpent is, and, and this serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the subtlety. Now, the serpent isn't lying. The serpent is simply asking a question. Just asking a question. Did God really say this? Now, what's interesting is already at this point, the serpent is beginning to twist God's words. Because as we will learn from even just a moment, God in Genesis 2 
does not say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. There's just one tree that you can't eat from. But do you see how subtle the deception begins with? It's so subtle. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The, the serpent doesn't just come out and lie, right? He doesn't just come out and say, hey, you should eat this. God said you'll die. You won't. You should eat it, right? Because in order for sin to actually work, to have its way, it, it must first manipulate the truth. Because if it's exposed for what it is, it will be seen for what it is. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Well done, Eve. She, she's correcting the serpent. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So far, so good. And you must not touch it or you will die. It's so interesting. God, God did say you must not eat from this one tree or you will die. But did you notice that Eve adds a bit right there in the middle? And, and what we don't know is did Eve add this or did Adam, who was the one who received the original command from God and was therefore responsible of relaying it to Eve, did did Adam mix it up? We, we don't know. But what happens here in the midst of this conversation with the serpent who begins his lies so subtly is that the truth is already starting to get massaged. It's starting to get twisted. And the serpent hasn't even lied yet. Sin always starts with subtlety. Think about the affair at the office. The husband's first thought, right, is never, oh, maybe I should sleep with my coworker and have an affair and ruin the life of my family. No, no, the first thought is much more subtle. It's much more like, man, she really gets me. She, she appreciates me. Right? Sin begins with a lie, and it always begins so, so subtly. But see, at this point in the story now, the serpent has Eve right where he wants her because she's already beginning to get a little confused about the truth. And so now the lie comes. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So many interesting things about this. Not, I mean, think about this. Adam and Eve, having been created in the image of God, are already like God. And yet the serpent here is promising something that in some sense they already have. But the lie is clear, right? These words from the serpent, you will certainly not die, directly contradict God's words just one chapter earlier. 
And notice the form that the lie comes in. The lie comes in the form of a promise. Often lies come in the form of promises. We, every day of our life, are surrounded by lies. We are bombarded by lies about God, about ourselves, about the world. And often these lies come in the form of promises. And I can, I can prove it to you. Uh, so as, as was mentioned in the announcements this morning, there's a, there's a small sporting event going on this evening. Uh, and let me just ask, who here is rooting for the 49ers? No one? <laughs> I, I, pre I appreciate that. That takes courage. Uh, how about the Chiefs? Chiefs, okay. Okay, there's the majority. Who here is voting or rooting for the commercials? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I have to admit, I'm in that, that third category. If the Seattle Seahawks were playing, that would be a different matter, uh, but they're not. And so I am drawn by the commercials. And here's what I want you to do tonight. If you are watching the Super Bowl, uh, as you're watching it, anytime you see a commercial, ask yourself, what promise? are they making? What promise are they making? Is it a promise of safety and security? If it's an insurance commercial? Is it a promise of acceptance and of love? If it's a body spray commercial? <laughs> Is the promise unclear because it's a Doritos commercial and it's just hilarious and you're supposed to... Who knows, right? But there are promises, there are promises that will be made tonight. And it's easy just to laugh at them. I do. Again, that's why I watch the Super Bowl. But answer this. Why do they expect $419 million to be spent tonight on commercials? Why are people spending $419 million to make promises to you? because they work and the promise that you believe is the promise that you will obey do you see how the serpent works so subtly do you see how sin works it begins with a lie very subtly at first a twisting of the truth but then it comes in the form of a promise this is how sin begins but, but this story not only explains how sin begins, it also explains at a fundamental and basic level what sin is. We continue. When, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. See, after having believed the lie, truth was no longer able to hold back desire. And in only half a verse, we are given the answer to that fundamental question, what's wrong with the world? She took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, throughout the history of interpretation, the past 2,000 years of, of this text within the Christian church, there, there have been many uh, interpreters and undoubtedly not a few jokes from husbands to their wives uh, that it was all the woman's fault, right? She's the, one, she's the one that took that fruit, right? Let's just blame the woman. But what's Adam doing during this whole conversation? <laughs> He's literally standing there. Like, we're told that she took the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband, who was there with her. Apparently, he's standing there the whole time just watching this interaction. At any point, he could have said, whoa, 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 uh, you guys are getting it wrong, or, uh, hun, let's not listen to this weird talking snake. Uh, but no, he stands there, and he's quiet. He is just as complicit. This was not something that the woman did. This is something that humanity did. Man and woman. But what exactly is going on here? Because on the surface, it looks like these two people simply having an, an afternoon snack. But remember, though, the, the man and the woman were not eating fruit from just any old tree. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the idea of them eating from this tree isn't, isn't that God in some way did not want them to have this special knowledge that would have enabled them to become something they otherwise wouldn't have, and as if God was holding something good back from them, which is the lie of the serpent. But no, see, that's, that's not what the knowledge of good and evil means. See, up until this point in the story, God was the one who determined what's right and what's wrong. He's the one who had this, this prerogative for knowledge of good and evil. But by grasping the fruit and disobeying God, the man and woman were, in a sense, taking that which solely belonged to God, the right to decide what is good and what is evil, and they were claiming it for themselves. As the, the Old Testament scholar Craig Bartholomew puts it, sin is therefore choosing oneself as the source for determining what is right and wrong rather than relying on God's word for direction. Before you or I ever sin, before you or I ever do anything that is wrong, we first have to decide that God is no longer in charge, but we are. Instead of recognizing and submitting to the God as the king of all creation, the tragic condition of every human being, and therefore the fundamental problem with the world, is that we have dethroned God as the ruler of our lives, and we've put ourselves in his place. And as we're about to see, this has devastating consequences. And so, so this story explains how sin begins. It begins with a lie, very subtly at first, 
and often in the form of a promise. The story also explains what sin is. It's a dethroning of God from the rightful place of rule in our lives and putting ourselves in his place. But finally, the story also explains what sin does. When, uh, when I was little, four or five years old, I, I have uh, this unfortunate negative memory of, um, of the stovetop burner, and it was red. You know what that means. I also remember my dad very explicitly saying, Michael, don't touch that. Very clearly. You know where this story is going. I then remember grabbing a chair and pulling it over and climbing up onto the chair and seeing this pretty glowing light and putting my hand right on top of it. I don't remember a whole lot after that, uh, but I think it involved like my dad calling 911. Um, that's the sort of lesson you only have to learn once, right? But here's what I learned though. Here's the lesson. When you touch a hot stove, there is a cost. If you want to touch a burning hot stove, it comes with a cost. If you disobey God, if you decide that God is not the one to sit on the throne of your heart, if you reject, if you dismiss, if you push away the source of all life and goodness and beauty, it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. And that cost, as we see in this story, is death. And what happens as we see this story work itself out is the death or the decay of all of the relationships that God intended to thrive in his creation, that God intended to flourish in his creation. Sin wrecks our relationship with oneself. Sin destroys your relationship with yourself. In verse 7, we read, immediately after they eat the fruit, the very first thing that happens is that the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The very last verse of chapter 2, right before we're introduced to this serpent, describes a state of affairs in which Adam and Eve were naked and were told they felt no shame. This is who they are, and they were at utter peace with themselves about it. The very first thing that happens when sin infects the world, when they choose to be the rulers of their own lives, is that their relationship with themselves begins to decay and they feel shame for the first time. They, they feel this sense, not just that what they've done is wrong, that would be guilt, but something much more sinister. They, they sense that who they are is wrong. That's the difference between guilt 
and shame. And there, there is no place for shame in God's good creation. It does not belong. And yet this is what they experience. Sin erodes, it wrecks one's relationship with oneself. We also see that sin wrecks our relationship with God. And this is, this is the most fundamental relationship there is. We see in, in verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Like, th this image is so, so striking. Here is God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. We get this impression that God not only created the world so that he could step back and just watch from afar, but he created his good and beautiful creation because he intended to live within it. He intended to enter it and to live in an intimate, daily relationship with his image bearers whom he loves so much. And so here he is in his creation, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he asks a question, where are you? Where are you? Out of fear, they hide from God. They run from God. Sin separates us from God, from the flourishing good life that he created us to enjoy with him. Sin also wrecks our relationship with one another. God gets into a conversation with Adam and says, Adam, what happened? Tell me about this. And what's the first thing that Adam does, if you read the story? Does he say, God, I messed up. I am so sorry. No, he blames Eve. He says, God, the, the woman, the woman that you put here, right? He not only blames Eve, he blames God. He's like, the woman that you put here, she, she's the one that gave me the fruit to eat. It's, it's her fault, right? Rift between Adam and Eve, between human beings. Sin disrupts relationships between us. I don't need to give you a lecture to know that this is true. And finally, sin also wrecks our relationship with the rest of creation. What we find is that because of this, the way that God describes it, now childbearing, is painful. And working the ground becomes difficult. The two things in God's creation that were intended to bring life and sustenance and flourishing relationships are now in some way working against us. The cancer of sin is spreading throughout creation, and it affects every relationship. It affects the relationship you have with yourself, with God, with one another, and with all creation. This is what's wrong with the world. There is a cost to sin, and how we envision this cost is actually important for how we think about God, because it's easy to think about God as this, simply this judge in the sky who wants to just punish us. And when we step out of line, he gets mad and, and he punishes us. But this is not the image that we're given of God 
in the Bible. The image that we're given of God in the Bible is much more that of a loving parent. A gentle, loving parent. Uh, last night, we had dinner at some friend's house. And, uh, and before going, we sat down our daughter, Esther, and we said, okay, Esther, you can bring one toy into the car, but you cannot bring it into our friend's house. She has a little toy watch. She really wanted to bring it in. We said, Esther, no. Why? Because you might leave it there, and you would be so sad if you left it there. We get to our friend's house. We have a great time. Time to go, giving hugs, saying goodbye, get in the car five minutes down the road, and the bomb goes off. Esther is screaming. And eventually we can decipher what she's saying, and she's, she then tells us that she left her watch at their house. To which I said, Esther, you brought the watch into the house? I just, we, we very specifically said not to, sweetheart, but she did. And there was nothing we could do about it. And we weren't turning back at that point. And we then had to explain to her that, well, you're just going to have to wait. Maybe, maybe they'll bring it to church tomorrow. Now, did we give her this rule? Do not bring the watch into the house. Arbitrarily? Or is it because we love our daughter and we knew chances were if she brought it, she would leave it there and that would cause great heartache, which it did. It's because we love her, right? God, God has a vision of flourishing life. And sin, this, this disease, this infection that spreads throughout the world is not a part of that vision. God calls us to the life that he does because he loves us. He loves us. I'd like to end with this this morning, and it's a word of hope. Because this, this is where everything goes wrong, but, but this story is not without hope. Did, did you notice how God approaches Adam and Eve in the garden? Right? Like, uh, it's phenomenal parenting advice, actually. Uh, to just watch how God interacts with Adam and Eve. Does, does God come storming down and be like, what happened here? What's going on, right? That's, uh, you had a videotape of me often parenting. That's what it would look like. But no, he's so gentle. He comes, he knows what's going on, but he asks a question. Where are you? Where are you? Did God know where they were? Right? He wasn't, he wasn't walking by and then all of a sudden, whoa, there you are. I didn't see you there. God knew where they were. Why does he ask them? Why does God ask, where are you? We learned something so beautiful about God in this story. God pursues us when we hide from him. God pursues the sinner. God, like a gentle parent, comes. Where are you? It's a good question, even for us this morning. And I might ask you, where are you? Where are you with God?
this morning, right now. Because whether or not you know it, if, even if you are running from him, he is pursuing you like a loving parent who wants you and his family. He is pursuing you. Where are you? This isn't the only story in the Bible about a garden. There's another story, and it too involved a tree. It too involved temptation. It too involved a conversation with God, even suffering and death. But instead of bringing death, this tree, this tree brought life. Instead of being overcome by temptation, the man in this garden overcame it. Instead of making excuses for his own sin and blaming God, this, this man took the blame and the sin of others upon himself and selflessly suffered and died for the sins of the world, for yours, for mine. This man is Jesus. Where are you this morning? As you reflect on this question and as we close in prayer, I wanna, I wanna invite you to respond to God in prayer. Where are you? Father, as we pause now and we recognize that though you have created a good world, it is a good world gone bad that there is an infection, not just in the world around us, but I, I can speak for myself in, in my heart, in all of our hearts. Like a parasite, sin looks to suck life from within us. And your vision and your desire is to deal with that sin, which is exactly what you did through your son, Jesus. And you invite all of us to turn to you to follow your son Jesus, to, to let you once again reign, to sit on the throne of our hearts as we walk in the way of forgiveness and grace. Father, you are so good. We love you too, and we pray in your son's name and by your spirit. Amen.